welcome to Deaf and Paula. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Episode number 73. So, um, yeah, as we've been chatting about all the fancy stuff regarding triathlon and everything, um, let's get started a little bit about closure and then let's get back to triathlon thing again. What he really means is let's start about closure and then get back to Emacs. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Well, we'll I don't there. know enough about closure, and I know even less about Emacs. That's good. <laughs> that is good. That is good. That's yeah. That's how we get started then. Yeah. But so, I think the biggest question—not not biggest. I think the first question I think I'm I'm interested in is like, when did you start with closure? Because you've been writing software for ages now, right? Yes. Um, I started in uh, 2010 in July. Oh, okay. So almost uh, nearing 21 years, sorry, 11 years. Yeah. The, the pandemic not has a strong point. changed my... He's a, he's a data scientist, the, the you know. <laughs> <laughs> I, need, I, need to, I need to run through my ML program to realize what... Never, never let minus. any of your uh, employers, listen, employers listen to this. I mean, nobody listens to this. So that's okay. <laughs> oh, you'd be surprised. I mentioned at work that I was being on... Uh, I was going to be on a podcast and people said, oh, which one? I said, Deafen, and eyebrows went up and, oh, that's really great. And yeah. <laughs> cool. Okay. We bribed them <laughs> to, to fake the enthusiasm. Um, but yeah, so before coming to Closure, so what, what were you working on? Where did you start in, in the software thingy? Oh, started, uh, I was writing C when I first started. Yay. Closure uh, <laughs> always uh, begins with C. <laughs> and, and then move to L. Uh, well, I was doing a Lisp. little bit of assembler, yeah. but it was mostly C. And I mm. was learning um, the I was learning to write Windows uh, programs at the time. Yeah. And then around about that time, the um, the Win thirty two S framework came into Windows three point one one for work groups. And so I was learning the 32-bit system as well, but also learning about undocumented DOS because there were um, there was still a lot of things you couldn't do in Windows without mm -hmm. like talking to DOS underneath. But DOS didn't actually do these things for you, or it did, but they didn't document it. However, yeah. lots of people have figured this stuff out and written books on it, like Andrew Schulman's books. And so I was doing a lot of that to start with. Um, Can I just ask you a then, quick question, Paul, yeah. before we go there? It's like, I mean. 2010 seems late to be starting with C. I mean, you know, I started in 1943, <laughs> you know, and uh, and that, you know, eventually got 2010 into C. 2010 was when I started with Closure. Ah, right. Okay, 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 cool. Yeah, that's... Pay attention. Pay attention. <laughs> that, that kombucha is getting to you already. Oh, that's true. Right, okay, cool. Right, now I'm with yeah. you. Okay. I mean, Windows so for Work was Groups wasn't around in 2010. I know, I was yeah, thinking, yeah. what the fuck? I mean, <laughs> some legacy systems and... <laughs> no. <laughs> Why is she starting like this? It's weird in 2010. No, I mean, last Okay, sorry. Where yeah. did I start? The I misunderstood. It was back then. Right, yeah, yeah, okay, good, yeah. I think it was probably me misunderstanding. No, no, it's fine. It definitely me mishearing. It's, it's right. right. Anyway. Come on, let's do it. Right. C, yeah. Windows for Work Groups, so, MS-DOS. <laughs> but then did you continue doing Windows stuff for, for a long time? Or did you move into other, like Java and, and then slowly other languages as well? Uh, 
Yeah, well, I mean, let's see. I, I went through C, mostly C for several years, uh, mm. but I moved off Windows and into Solaris and mm. um, Digital Unix uh, and then back to Windows doing other languages like Delphi mm. or uh, <laughs> I spent a, a bit of time on VBA. Oh. Um, yeah. <laughs> Uh, I spent some time with uh, MFC mm. um, on, on, and a lot of C++ and then yeah. C++ on QNX. Ooh, wow. The RTOS thing. Yeah, yeah. Ooh, that was for the, the a, rail system going. in Melbourne, uh, oh. all the passenger information displays. Um, oh, right. I was a team lead on, on a project for like updating all the displays on the Melbourne um, uh, awesome. platforms. And that was all done in C++ on QNX. Mm. Uh, but then around then, I moved more uh, into Linux and Java. Okay. And I was there for about, I was solidly on Java for about eight years. Mm -hmm. But in the meantime, I learned, some friends pointed me to SICP. Mm. Uh, and through that, I became enamored with Scheme. Mm. Uh, all that approach to programming. And so every language which had Lambda in it suddenly became more attractive to me. <laughs> yeah. And I'd look at Ruby and think, yeah, but no. And I looked at Scala and it, Scala got me a lot further and I love the immutable data structures in it. Mm. Um, and I was really getting much more into Scala uh, mm. when the nonprofit I was working for uh, said that, you know, we'd had the global financial collapse and they were going to focus on their core technology, which is not what I was working on. Could I find something else? Mm. And I went to a company that was doing closure development. Yeah. So your path to closure was from SSEP and Lispiness, and then that led you to closure or is it well, something? Well, sort of. I mean, yeah. I was very enthusiastic about getting into closure. But I was a semantic web person. Right, right. And uh, that's what brought me to the US in the first place. Yeah. And then the, uh, and that's what I was doing. And then the company I moved to in 2010 was doing semantic web development using Clojure. Oh, okay. Right, okay. Is it something, uh, is, isn't it something that um, Alex was working on as well? Uh, it was the same company that Alex was working ah, on. Ah, okay, okay. Oh. Because I, I remember. Going to his talk in in Belgium, this was way before Closure was a bit uh, popular. He was then not working with Cognitive, but for that company, I think. Was talking about all the, yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. Revelatics, yeah. yes, yeah. Okay, yeah. nice. So, so I, I interviewed there, and they said, "Do you know Closure?" And I knew it was a Lisp, and yeah. on the JVM, and I said, "No," but I think <laughs> I could learn it. And they said, "Yeah, buy a book." Yeah. So I did, yeah. and by the time I started, I'd read the book. <laughs> nice. So for, for, for people like me who are not really that um, well-versed with all this uh, fancy tech stuff, so what is Semantic Web? It's a set of standards from the W3C mm -hmm. uh, around uh, data linking and uh, communication. Yep. So from a simple perspective, the World Wide Web is a web of documents which yep. link to one another. Whereas the semantic web is a web of information which links to, um, to other pieces of information around the semantic web. Yeah. And it's the standards for doing that. So one of the, the bases for that 
um, for those standards is the URI. Mm -hmm. And um, there's a whole lot of semantics built up around what these URIs are and how you should build them and things like that. Um, yeah. But then the, the data model for connecting all of these things is a graph. Yeah. And the standard for representing these graphs is RDF, uh, Resource yeah. Description Framework. Yeah. Um, and that allows you to describe properties and attributes of um, uh, different objects mm -hmm. in the system and how things connect to one another. Uh, yeah. Objects are all represented using URIs, well, mm -hmm. mostly. Uh, yeah. And you describe these things in a graph. Your graphs, because you're using these standards, because you're using URIs, should naturally link in to graphs from other places. Yep. Uh, where two groups have used URIs for the same semantic concept, but have used different URIs for it, you can then create linkages between them so that you okay. can link up different documents, which, um, I mean, different uh, semantic web documents, yep. which say, well, this is that, and this is that, and this is related to this. And okay. uh, this is where linked data comes from. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and the fact that there are all these standards is really useful because it means that, like, if I want to take data from an Oracle database and move it over to an, uh, a MySQL database, yeah. uh, often the way that I've seen that done is it gets dumped out as a set mm. of create tables and yeah, exactly. insert like into, which yeah. is uh, very crude yeah mm. um whereas semantic web standards using rdf you dump it out in a standard format which yeah. all semantic web systems should be able to move that data around and understand that data. what about the or word paula the scary or word ontology <laughs> that is a little like your schema over the top but it's more powerful uh, mm -hmm. An ontology just describes the structure. Sorry, not not sorry. The schema really just describes the structure uh, with some concept of um, of semantics. On well, this is this means that, or it might be the addition of those things. Whereas the ontology is much more descriptive about well, if you're one of these and you're one of these, you're naturally going to also be one of those unless you're one of these. And mm. you can describe that to a nearly infinite extent. I mean, how far do you want to go? It's like trying to write um, uh, spec for closure. You can, mm. uh, you can describe your function in really minimal terms. You can say, well, I can actually, I know these properties about the function. Mm. I'll, I'll just describe more. And I've written spec, which is bigger than the functions I was trying to describe. Of course. <laughs> and, <laughs> Uh, yeah. And you can do that with your ontologies as well. And there's a there's always a trade-off. But is it this the um, the web 3.0 thingy, right? This is uh, this is so we have this web 2.0 with all the mispronounced, you know, or dropping the oval sort of companies, and then we have the web 3.0, which is supposed to be this um, everything changing into more semantic thingy. Because well, I remember data is the main thing, isn't it? It's me meant to be. Yeah data that's driving web 3.0 that's the biggest yeah. thing because so, you're so, you know because the problem is it's all something. documents at the moment and mm -hmm. that's the web was all documents but now it's meant to be like linked data like paula was saying you know yeah so, yeah so more services can like understand what a particular page means not just what documents it kind of has yeah yeah you know what just the because, html layout is yeah exactly yeah. because i remember my 
uh, when I was doing, uh, I think I was still blogging at some point, and then there was like, you could put more details into your blog headers or meta the descriptions saying, I am this, and then my profession is this, or I'm linked yeah. to this person or something like that. I mean, to me, the thing yeah. that's horrible about the current web is that we have all these like people. I mean, there's a thing called, you know, SEO, which I think should be just taken out and shot in the back of the head. Uh, <laughs> and that's really what linked data and ontologies and sort of semantic web is meant to replace, you know, sorry, yeah. this is meant to replace SEO because you don't need SEO anymore. If you actually are clear and explicit about what this what this website is meant to represent, then yeah. you can just be straightforward about it and you don't have to do all this yeah. bullshit. That's my understanding anyway, Paul. You're more of an expert than I am. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just a soapbox person. <laughs> I, I've been peripheral to a lot of things, so I'm not going to call myself an expert, but I'm aware of a lot of of stuff as opposed to being an expert on, on it. Right. Um, the problem with the semantic web has been that, I mean, some of the things it's tried to do where it's created standards so that you've got this interoperability, you've got the portability of data, um, mm -hmm. and they do try to be very complete about you know, what the semantics of each element is. And mm, that's yeah. led to a lot of debate as people have got into the corner cases and things like that. This has um, led to a complexity that people have avoided. Yeah, uh, They just, they say, well, this is too hard. I don't want to do it. Or this seems like overkill. And so while it's a great idea, it hasn't really panned out. Mm. Uh, we do see it being used, mm. but not as much as the vision had. Been. I think the, and uh, instead we, we see it being re-implemented. Yeah. Hmm. yeah, yeah, locally. With yeah. without all of the 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 complexity sometimes in small local areas, but it's missing things which make it portable with other applications. Yeah. Uh, and so the semantic web, you know, it's a nice ideal, but it just hasn't been working out in the way that a lot of people had hoped it would. I went to a conference about the semantic web a few years ago, and there was some people I was working with who who were like, you know, they were experts. They'd and um, you know, they'd worked at Google and they'd worked in other places that were still doing, you know, Web three zero stuff. And there was a conference all about it, and um, there was a, like a question at the end, which was really like, do we think? Because one of the problems with the semantic web, to some extent, is it's a bit of a top down activity, in the sense that there are standards and there are sort of ontologies and all these kind of things and it's kind of like well in the sense it's top down but what i mean is by that is that you have to have people organizing above corporations and above websites so you can have these standards so that that's what i mean by top down in that sense like any kind of like standard or whatever is a sort of top down thing and what people are saying was all the benefits that you could get from the semantic web are already available via google or via Bing or whatever, probably not Bing, but you know, you get what I mean. Because <laughs> you can still search for things and kind of like, you know, your intuition about what a website is meant to represent through SEO, et cetera, and through the Google's kind of AI index, et cetera. Well, they're kind of making it work. But the problem, like you say, is it's just local to Google then. You know, no one else can fucking do it. <laughs> it's all siloed. And if you create data, you can't link it into what Google's doing. Right, right. And mm. you can only get so much of out of what Google has. They'll let you see some of it, you know, with this yeah. API or, or whatever. Yeah. And even if they do, then 12 months later, they're going to say, we don't offer that anymore. Yeah. yeah, yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> it goes into Google graveyard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the, the technologies underlying all of this are being employed in, in so many different areas. 
but the standards are not. Mm. And, mm. you know, so it's been a wonderful thing to be involved with because it gave me exposure to all of the technology and how mm. these things work together. And, um, but the, the overall overarching dream of it all mm. hasn't really been realized in the way that I had thought it might be. Mm, mm, I mean, I hadn't, it wasn't my dream early on. I was just working in the area. Mm, Uh, Other people's idea and I was a developer doing it. (laughs) Um, But I, uh, you know, I learned a lot in the process. And this is stuff that I get to, you know, uh, implement these days. I mean, when I use Datomic or Asami or Mm. anything like that, a lot of those uh, techniques and technologies have all, you know, that I can bring them forward in interesting ways to what I'm doing now, like yeah. re-implementing um, a lot of the, implementing a query engine for Asami. I'm using a lot of the syntax for Datomic, but I haven't actually gone with the semantics of Datomic sometimes because mm. I don't like them as much, and I've <laughs> gone for Sparkle instead, Right. Yeah. Um, which is actually very similar in a lot of ways. There's a, there's a few things like not, or, which is... I think we need to, um, we need to introduce what, what Asami is. Because you're... Okay. Yeah. Uh, so Asami is a graph database, um, mm. uh, a little bit like Datomic, but like an RDF database, it is schemaless. Yeah. So how Which does, is um, funny because I heard you talking about schema on another podcast at one point, and like um, everything has schema, or what does it mean to be schemaless? So, <laughs> so before we get into Asami, um, so what do you think about the current state of um, graph databases? Because we have this Neo4j. Because I've been I've been playing a little bit with uh, some obscure graph database called SAP HANA. No, uh-huh. <laughs> that's that's one of the something that I don't want to publicly admit, you know. <laughs> so and you just did. Uh, yeah, as I said, nobody listens to this podcast, so that's I'm safe. <laughs> but um, because it, it's all basically implemented um, uh, at the end of the day, it's just basically two big SQL tables and then edges and vertices, and that's pretty much it. And uh, and and we had this um, multiple graph databases. Uh, Come and go, like uh, we had this uh, Titan DB thing, and then mm-hmm. now Janus Graph and Neo4j and uh, DGraph most recently, which is in Go. Um, so, how how do you see the graph database ecosystem, and, and what is the main use of it? Because uh, they never seem to be like you know the the mainstream databases. No, they don't. Uh, yeah. Personally, I like using them. Uh, it depends on what you build over the top of it. They're very yeah. The idea of graph databases is that they represent data at a very simplistic level. Uh, Datomic, mm. you know, um, publicized this idea of uh, the datum, yeah. which is an entity has an attribute of this value. Yeah, value and time, yeah. Yeah. So and transaction, yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's a, a very small unit of information. Mm. Uh, and graph databases are built on on units of information like that. Now, some of them are, you know, a little bigger, like Neo4j, I believe, which I haven't used very much. Mm-hmm. Um, Neo4j, I think, has entities which have attributes on them and then uh, connects entities to each other through these edges. Yeah. Other graph databases say, well, the attributes are basically edges to literal values. Oh, yeah. And 
so they don't necessarily distinguish between entity and, and connections from one entity to another. Mm. Um, and it's that often comes down to an implementation detail, um, and it may be exposed in the query language or may not. Mm. Um, so various graph databases are taking different approaches to the same sort of thing, they, but yeah. they you really do have a very elemental view of how data is structured, and that will be l less efficient for some applications than, say, a relational database is yeah. or a document database. Mm. Um, but it also tends to be extremely efficient for certain sorts of things, mm. um, graph traversals or um, just the fact that you often have a lot more data indexed that you can get to rapidly that you wouldn't necessarily be able to with yeah. um, with relational databases like oh I'm missing this index of them the query takes <clears throat> sorry the query takes two minutes yeah but if I had the index the query would take half a second yeah. um, whereas um, graph databases tend to be a lot faster on those sorts of things but then yeah. when you say okay I can find the data quickly but let's build up the documents or the structures out of that that could take longer uh, mm. you know. It's a different way of viewing your data. Yeah. Uh, and each one of them takes a different approach. And then you've got the whole scalability issues of like if it's in the cloud or if it's local, uh, if it's in the cloud and you're replicating, if I find these this information in this part of the cloud, but the remainder of the information is over there, what's the best way to join that in a scalable yeah. way? And that's not easy. Yeah. Um, and I think there's been a lot of issues around doing that and not enough research into, into some of that. I would expect Amazon to be doing some of it. <laughs> I, I applied for a job with Amazon, actually, oh. just when I started at Revelytics. Okay. And I had been doing graph databases since um, 2000. 2000. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and so it was 10 years later, and I'd been working on this graph database for like eight or nine of those years. And um, I was uh, being interviewed for the cloud team and I mm -hmm. got an offer and then I got the Revelytics offer and so I was balancing them. And they did say, look, we really want you to come in because we'd love for you to implement a graph database in our in AWS. Yeah, yeah. And that was probably really Neptune, tempting. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, but, uh, and that's what ended up coming out some years later. So I was kind of curious yeah. as to how that worked out and who they got to do it. <laughs> um, and, nice. you know, what the infrastructure for it is. But, yeah, um, yeah uh, I would expect that, I, I don't know a lot of the details of Neptune, so I would expect yeah, yeah. it to be dealing with a lot of the questions that I have around how to scale things. Okay. You know, when you've got replication and you find the data, how do you then connect it to other data? Because the whole point of a graph database is this, is the connectivity in the data. Yeah. And yeah. if you split it up too much, then you there are performance implications to that. What mm. about, like, because one of the most obvious use cases to some extent these days is the social networks or networks in general of, you know, different things, networking, device, uh, IoT, uh, you know, these kind of things. So, I mean, given the fact that Facebook is a social network, I mean, they've got some graph. Used to be. <clears throat> well, yeah. <laughs> the the anti-social network now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Because, you know, they're, they're 
that's so often the use case, isn't it? You know, a friend of a friend of a friend, and you know, how do you how do you like traverse this graph? And and then and, and traversing one way is like one thing, but actually going back up is also tricky when you you can go back up left and right. Whereas with relational databases, the navigation of those nodes is much more difficult in both directions or many directions. Graph databases are good for getting out that way, but I mean, mm. again, this is where I'm saying if you've got linkages. Mm. So part of the graph is stored here and part of the graph is stored there because of scalability mm. then how do you find those linkages uh, in an efficient way mm. yeah because you're going to have to ship you know one part of the data to a place where another part of the data is whether they yeah. both go to a, a mutual place in the middle or whether one travels to the other to be linked mm. you have to do it in in some way like that um, yeah I've seen too many technologies which are, uh, which take the simple approach of either bringing it all into one place. Um, well, actually, usually they just bring it all into one place because they can get it up and running. But I think that 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 leads me to the to the thing of um, uh, so Asami, right? So how do you compare Asami with these other database, data, sorry, graph databases? So Asami oh, is a graph database, right? <laughs> I compare it very poorly. Um, uh, well, it's fast. Um, <laughs> a lot of what we do is in memory. Um, yep. And so we haven't had the scalability issues there. Mm. Um, it's very fast and effective, and it's been a really good way for doing things locally. Yeah. Uh, getting things up and running and working is easier and simpler in Asami than it is with other systems I've used. Mm -hmm. um, also, because Asami is closure script, yeah. there's only a few uh, local graph databases which do that. I mean, there's um, DataScript, for instance, mm. yeah. uh, and Data11, I think, is um, a more recent one. Mm. Um, so these will run in your browser for you, and we get a lot out of that. But Asami also works on a on a system where it's storing things in files. Uh, and I do hope to push this out into other things like Redis backends and things like that. Mm. But um, mm. to date, it's been almost entirely me. Yeah. And I'm, I can only go so far as one woman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, but it's... She needs help, people. You heard it here first. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll, apparently I'm getting some help soon. And That's I mean, yeah. that, that said, I'm, I've had a couple of, um, uh, I've had some public PRs come in. Mm -hmm. I've had, um, uh, there's one person on my team at work who's um, helped with some query manipulations, yep. which yep. has been really useful, and I'm hoping to get more of that. Mm -hmm. um, but apparently there, um, there will be more people coming in to, um, to help. Uh, with the project in the not too distant future, I hope. Mm -hmm. uh, at the moment, I'm, I believe I'm the only one who's really across all of it. But, um, <laughs> but it but is, yeah. it is, uh, it's written in Closure Script, or it, is it um, something that you could you can use it on on JVM Closure or Closure? Yeah, it's almost all of it is CLJC code. Okay, so it can be used in both Closure context as well as in the in the browser. Yeah. So the yeah. only parts which are not in CLJC are in CLJ or CLJS. Mm. Um, so the 
the local storage stuff is currently in CLJ. Um, yeah. That's done with memory mapped files. Mm-hmm. Um, and unfortunately, I don't have an async interface for a lot of this stuff, and I'm going to have to do that uh, to yeah. use local DB. So, um, you know, the local storage. Um, yeah, yeah. And there are reasons why I haven't gone that way. There are performance implications on the JVM. Um, yeah. But, you know, we do want that flexibility in the uh, in the browser as well. But as things stand, we can have smallish graphs and just store them into local storage in the browser. Um, uh, but yeah, it's, it takes a bit of time to load data up into Asami, uh, other mm-hmm. systems are faster. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in the JVM, you can just do that in the background, but because the reason for that is that it stores data in indexes. So yeah. if data has been stored, then it has been indexed yeah. and, and that takes time. Yeah. Um, but once it's in there, you can access it really, really quickly. Mm. Uh, there are other systems which are much better at loading data up quickly, yeah. Yeah. Um, but they don't answer qu- queries as quickly. So yeah. there's trade-offs there. Um, yeah, this is something that um, that uh, because I've been investigating TGraph for for one of the projects that I'm working on as well, and there are a couple of surprising things that you see when you work with graph databases when you're coming from you know relational databases. One of mm-hmm. the things is that you know we wanted to have these real-time updates of the of the graph. Um, so that's kind of a tricky business in, in graph databases. And also bulk loading of the data, especially if you want to have like a referencing um, highly connected graph, then all the UIDs, then I can't load it in batches because I load one batch and I get the IDs back, then I have to query again to point them and then update my input again, which mm-hmm. is crazy for us because we have like almost 3 million nodes and all that stuff as well uh, with, the, with the project that I was working on. So. It's it's like a, it felt like paradigm shift or or different trade offs. You know, uh, it's yeah. very difficult for me for my brain to comprehend. I'm just okay. Insert into where whatever. <laughs> so, <laughs> that, that, that's not going to work here, right? No, it is quite different uh, because mm. when you're bringing in more data and you're referencing original data, then you yeah. want to know what it is you're referencing, um, and you know. The way that RDF, Sparkle systems work. So Sparkle is the mm-hmm. the query and update system yep. for RDF data. So it's a sparse QL, something like that? Uh, what is it? It stands for the Sparkle Protocol and RDF Query Language. Ooh. <laughs> it's a recursive acronym. <laughs> yeah. Um, and Just interestingly, like it, includes, it includes protocol <laughs> in that. Uh, specification. Okay. So, mm. you know, if you if you have an SQL database, you've got your own binary interface for talking to it. Yeah. Um, so talking to Oracle is different to talking to MySQL. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why we have ODBC and JDBC to try mm-hmm. to standardize that. Yeah. Uh, well, Sparkle defines how you talk to, to a, an RDF database. Oh, okay. Um, and this is part of the whole thing that I was talking about with having standards. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, if you've, you know, when, when you're using RDF systems, everything that is to be referenced from elsewhere is going to be identified by URI. So you do have that ability to just say, well, I'm putting this in. And then later on, when you want to come back to talk to it, you can just use that URI. Again. Yeah. Um, 
Whereas if it's in atomic and you're saying, well, entity and, you know, I'm given an ID of negative one, then <laughs> you come back and say at the end of the transaction, well, what was negative one? What was that object, please? Yeah. Um, and your DBI then gives you a way around some of that. But, mm -hmm. um, okay. Yeah. Uh, there, are, there are speed issues with, with doing some of this mm. stuff. Um, like Asami, I think, is reasonably good at doing, you know, small updates. But if you want to do a bulk load, yeah. Uh, it takes time because it's indexing. If you broke that up, it would actually take a little more time and you end up taking more disk space uh, because it's using um, persistent data structures internally. Mm. So if you, mm. um, if you do a bulk load, that's fine. Uh, but if you then break that bulk load up into two or three, then the first one, you know, expands the tree structures on disk, but then the next one will end up copying a lot of that tree structure because it yeah. was persistent. Yeah. And, the, you know, the third block will copy a lot of it again, and you mm. really didn't want to be doing that. Uh, but if you do it in one go, then it'll take you a minute to upload, you know, a gigabyte okay. or something. Oh, not a gigabyte, but more. Um, I think at the moment there's a lot of optimizations to come in, but when I release the Asami... 2.0, which has storage. Um, I think I'm only getting, um, I think it's 1,200 statements per second hmm. being indexed. Okay. Yeah. Which sounds like a, a few, but you know, if you insert a gigabyte document, that that's um, that can be millions of statements. So 1,200 yeah. per second isn't a lot. Yeah. But if you if you look at that's on the, the service side, I assume. <laughs> <laughs> That's on my notebook. Okay. <laughs> In Firefox. <laughs> so if you if you look under the hood, because they, um, in in Asami at least, and that is it, everything graph all the way to the disk. Because um, I know that dgraph and other systems, they, that the underlying data structure, like behind the scenes, mm -hmm. it's either a key value store that they wrote uh, to make it super fast and. So that there is a, there is like a graph is basically an abstraction on top of SQL or on top of key value thing. Often, so how, yeah. how does how does because that that seems to be easier to to, to build I guess I don't know what, what the reason for it. But how is Asami when when you compare it to this kind of you know is it turtles all the way down <laughs> graphs all the way down? No, well graphs are usually um, expressed using. Well, I'll say tuples, but um, generally we look at them as triples. Mm. So in Datomic, it was always entity attribute value. Yeah. In RDF, it's always uh, subject, predicate, object, yeah. same things. Yeah. Um, just different labels for the same thing. Mm. Um, so these tuples are what are being stored. Mm. And we index them by just storing them in order. So you store them in, you know, if I'm saying subject, predicate, object, you store it in the sub in order of subject, yep. and then for the same subject, you'll store it in order of predicate, and then if you've got um, the same subject predicate, you store it in order of object. And then if it's in, uh, so that's the first index. Mm. And the second index will be stored, uh, ordered first by predicate, and then by mm. object, and then by subject, and then the third one will be stored in order of uh, object, and then subject, and then predicate. There's only okay. six possible orderings, yep. uh, and you only need three of them. That, mm. That's if you're storing triples. Now, yeah. if you're storing quads mm -hmm. or more, then, mm. um, you know, if it's quads, there's 24 orderings. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you, 
to have complete coverage, you need uh, six okay. of those mm-hmm. 24. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, which, which six do you choose? Um, and, you know, do you actually need that complete coverage? And usually not. Usually you only need four mm-hmm. out of the six. Um, and, you know, and what if you're putting in five? Do you need to index, you know, according to everything there? And sometimes yeah. there's trade-offs where you can say, well, I can find the statement. If I just index on the fifth element, mm-hmm. I can find statements by that fifth element and I've got this and now I'm here. I can use the other indexes to then get to the next part. And mm-hmm. that will be a little slower than a direct lookup, but it's actually all I need for this infrequent sort of query. So. You know, there, there are trade-offs of the, which indexes you want to use and, and things yeah. like that. Um, so, And then, Asami, this, this index is right now like a custom format that, yeah. because you're talking about Redis being one of the backends. So, you, you... so I've layered it. Um, you know, the first layer I built was just, you know, um, blocks where I say, give me a block yeah. and... And, and it has an ID associated with it. And it says, okay, here's your block and it's ID one. And here's mm. your block, it's ID two. Or the ID could be a URI or something yeah. like that. And um, I'm allowed to read and write that block. Mm-hmm. And then when I'm done, I say, okay, this block is, is committed and it'll never be written to again. Yeah. Um, but I can always say at any point, give me the block with that ID. Uh, and that's, you know, I can do that with S3 storage where, you mm. know, the block is just a buffer. And when I've sent it's written, I can send it off and its ID is URL to get to it. Yeah. Um, or I can do it as a file offset if it's a memory map file, or mm. I can do it as just a key for Redis or yeah. anything like that. And yeah. over the blocks, I've then built a few different indexes. One's a tree index and others are flat storage and things like this. And um, then on top of those indexes, I've then got statement storage and I've got uh, a mapping of um, uh, IDs to uh, things which can be uh, serialized and deserialized. So I can store mm-hmm. strings and URIs and keywords and blobs and yeah. things like that. And I, and I reference them by, by the number. That, yeah. that they come back as. And then once I've got numbers like that, I can store statements as just, you know, tuples of numbers. Mm. Uh, and it's all layered like this all the way up to the top and then put a query engine on it and you're done. <laughs> so <I think> simple. <laughs> I think I understood everything. So now I can I can get started with my own graph database now in, in Emacs. Well, <laughs> I hadn't thought about it really. And just um, two days ago, I was speaking with uh, um, a young woman locally. Mm-hmm. I'm in Women Who Code, and yeah. um, uh, we haven't been doing a lot in the last year with the pandemic, and mm-hmm. so th- mm-hmm. there have been uh, various things where we, we connect up, uh, mm-hmm. you know, just for, for talking online. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this one young woman was asking me, you know, how do you even start writing a database? What was the yeah, first thing you yeah, did? Yeah, exactly. I yeah, think that's, yeah, that is yeah. something that always fascinated me. So what is the answer? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I started with, um, you know, that, that first thing where I wanted to have blocks, which mm-hmm. I could reference by an ID. And yeah. then I, from there I built up. And, you know, I had that because I had that... Um, what do you call it? 
that architecture in mind because yeah. the previous craft database that I'd built that I was, you know, a, a co-designer on and a co-implementer on was Mulgara. And mm -hmm. that's entirely in Java. Mm. Uh, but that was uh, built the same way. Uh, yeah. Now, there are different architectures, you know, as you go up that stack, mm. uh, because over the years I've learned, oh, I can do this or I could do that or I shouldn't do this. And, um, and Rich Hickey had this wonderful insight at one point, and I was like, oh, my goodness, I, I should have been doing this all along. Um, <laughs> we, we were using a, um, a persistent data structure all along. Mm -hmm. in Mulgara. Yeah. And we had all of this bookkeeping to figure out when each node in trees were being used. Yeah. So that when we'd done commits and we were no longer reading from old um, transaction points, mm -hmm. then they could be cleaned up and any nodes being used in, in the data structures could be recycled and brought in for newer data that's being inserted. Mm -hmm. And we needed to do that because when we first started building it, which was 2000, we didn't have very large hard disks. Mm. And yeah. as time went by, disks got cheaper and cheaper. And so I started saying, well, all of this bookkeeping we're doing is slowing the system down. Why don't we just stop doing that and yeah. abandon that information on the disk? And if you need to clean it up, you can just port it forward into a new database and, and delete the old files. Yeah. But we don't need that stuff anymore. We um, you know, we don't need to clean it up because disk is cheap. That's before yeah, we yeah. went to solid state yeah. drives. But mm -hmm. um, disk is cheap, so let's not worry about that cleanup. We get a lot more performance out of this. And so I started moving in that direction. Mm -hmm. And then Rich uh, released Atomic where he said, and we can go back to previous points in time. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I've got all those previous points in time. <laughs> I just never gave anyone the access to, to get to them. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I thought, I really need to do that for Mulgara. But Mulgara yeah. was written in Java. And by that point, I was writing Clojure and I didn't want to write it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, um, and I thought, you know, maybe I could do this in Clojure one day. And mm. then it sort of somehow in the end, I ended up with Asami and decided last year, let's just mm. do it. So yeah. I did, and now Asami doesn't. So to write a graph database, all you need is just like 20 years of experience, understanding all the standards, <laughs> and then writing it in, in Java, and then C1, and then write in Clojure. Seems, seems pretty simple, I think, you know? <laughs> well, I started when I had 15 years of experience, so it's, you know, <laughs> right. it so it's wasn't 20. 20. The, the requirements so okay. are much lower. <laughs> Fair point. So for, for, let's talk about the query side of it, right? Because now, Querying the graph database these days, you know, you have the you have um, OpenCypher, you have GraphScript, you have GraphQL, you have Sparkle, you have Datomic's way of querying. Yeah, Tinkerpop, yeah, Gremlin stuff and everything. Mm. So why did you pick Sparkle and how do you see the other query languages? Uh, well, Asami doesn't do Sparkle right now, though it should. Mm. Um, <laughs> Okay. Bad database. <laughs> <laughs> Back to 2000. No when So originally it wasn't called Mulgara. Um, mm -hmm. It was called the Tucana Knowledge Store. We sold it commercially. And mm. then in 2004, I think it was, we open sourced it. 
mm-hmm. and gave it a the name of an Australian marsupial because we were all Australian. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was called Kawari. Mm-hmm. Um, and then about a year later, the VC uh, investor who came along for some strange reason decided to close us all down. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was a lot of money left to for people who wanted to buy this system. Yeah. Uh, and so a number of them approached me and said, hey, would you continue working on the open source side of it and we'll pay you that money? So I did that mm. for a bit. Mm. Uh, then the company who bought Tucana had issues with the way we were doing the open source stuff in in Kawari. So we said, look, you, you take hold of Kawari. I don't care anymore. I'm going to fork it and we'll do Mulgara. Yeah. And so that, that, I spent the next five years on Mulgara and you know, mm. even a couple of years ago, I was getting contracts to keep it updated mm. because there are still <laughs> systems using it. Oh, wow. um, so it has that long history. It was one of the very first graph databases in the semantic web space anyway. Mm. Uh, and we did it because there were none. We wanted one and we couldn't find mm. anything mm. useful. Um, so we we built that and because there weren't any, there weren't any standards for talking to it. Um, mm. And we invented our own query language for talking to that. Um, you know, and I was stuck in a room with somebody working out how to do this, and then they recorded it all, and I've got my name on a patent somewhere. Wow. Um, <laughs> and, but this was all, um, that was called the Tukana query language, which is TQL. Mm. Uh, and around the same time Hewlett-Packard Labs was doing something similar, they came up with Jenna, which has mm-hmm. now moved into the Apache Commons. Yeah. Uh, they came up with their query language, which was RDF query language, RQL. Yeah. Um, and then there were other systems which were trying to do their own thing. And so that's when the semantic web, the sorry, W3C came together and said, we want to form a committee for a standard on this. Mm-hmm. Um, one member of my team was on that committee mm-hmm. and they were staying up till 2 a.m. because we were in Australia. Um, <laughs> 2 a.m. on the committee calls and they'd show up to work the next day with bleary-eyed and say, well, we talk about this and this. And I said, no, you shouldn't be doing that. You've got to do this. And I was blogging about it and I was getting all these responses back on my blog, which is, you know, an interesting interaction with the whole process. Yeah. Um, so I ended up on the second committee for Sparkle, so Sparkle 1.1. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was involved in a lot of that. Um, and so it was influenced both by RQL and TQL and uh, a lot of experience from different people who had implemented these things over the years. Yeah. And, you know, so I had done a lot of that work and had a good idea of what the semantics meant and why they were being done one way or another. Um, but, you know, having to parse text in a query language is annoying. I mean, I know we've got... Um, Instapars, yeah, mm-hmm. but it was still it's still a frustrating process to go from semantic represent sorry from syntactic representation through yeah, to, to this as well yeah. yeah yeah and uh, Datomic just by doing everything in basically even mm-hmm. it's very similar syntax it's the same shape it does yeah. the same things and it just yeah. made sense to me to use that because I didn't need to write a parser at all yeah and um, and in fact, 
I take the where clause and I actually uh, execute the where clause as is. I don't need to do any transformation yeah. on it. I just execute mm. it. Yeah. Um, you know, there are a few queries which if you're doing uh, aggregates, I'll do transformations on the, on some of the, those queries. But mm. um, I really like that Eden approach. So mm. if I do a Sparkle engine, I'll end up parsing it and turning it into Eden and <laughs> executing <laughs> that. Yeah. Um, so mostly it's the data log kind of query language uh, here for Asami as well. Yes, yeah. Okay. But I mean, I I always wince whenever I hear people call it data log, even though everybody in the community <laughs> calls it data log. <laughs> Why? I mean, it's 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 not data something that data log is uh, data log's been around for uh, since yeah. the seventies, I think. Yeah, it's a, a subset thing, yeah. of Prolog. Prolog, yeah. Um, yeah, it's a decidable subset, which is uh, it doesn't have any nesting, it doesn't mm. have any negation, um, and it maps directly into database querying. Mm. Uh, so you don't end up with like searching, which Prolog can get caught up in. Yeah. Uh, everything a data log can do can be turned into queries on a database. Mm. And the syntax of it looks like Prolog. It's a subset yeah. of Prolog. Yeah. Um, now, what Datomic is doing is a pattern-based thing, which looks like Sparkle, frankly. Mm -hmm. um, and it has the same semantics as data log. So semantically, it's a data log. But syntactically, yeah. it's not. Mm, and yeah. whenever people are talking about Datomic's syntax, they say it's a data log syntax. Mm. It's like... <laughs> So Datomic is data log. Semantically, it really is. Syntactically, it's not data log, but that's yeah, what yeah. everybody calls it now. And so I kind of have to accept that that's the way <laughs> the world uh, changed. But anyone outside of the Closure ecosystem would not understand mm. that when you said data log, that that's what that you're talking about this Datomic style query, because yeah. it's yeah. Yeah, <laughs> but this is this is the this is the nice thing about this podcast. You know, it's a mass editing opportunity. You know, everyone can just like oh yeah, everyone's going to listen to me and know. change their yeah. <laughs> change so what they work, call yeah. it. <laughs> so don't if people listen log. to me carefully, they'll notice that I don't ever call it data log syntax. Mm. Um, I'll say if I'm referring specifically to the syntax, I'll say datomic or data script like syntax. Right. Uh, I I never call it data log syntax because yeah. you know to me data log syntax looks like um, prefix predicates. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So why? Okay, maybe, maybe why closure is probably I think um, kind of a given because from 2010 you've been working in closure. But do you think um, closure gave you any advantage in implementing this because you have years and years or decades of experience in C and C plus plus and Absolutely. You know, yeah. I mean, yes. Man, you, you don't need to say that because it's a closure podcast, you know. <laughs> okay. So over four years, we a team of I don't know, um, like a dozen people built mm. Mulgara. Mm. Yeah. And um, five years, mm. thereabouts, four to five years. Um, and I know that it, you know the. Um, 
the founder of the company, uh, the two founders of the company, uh, they invested their, you know, their mortgage, everything they had into it. They then took on money from a VC to, mm. to make all of this happen. Um, Asami really came about as a part-time project for me. Um, and it's just been me mostly. Mm. There have been yeah. a couple of features, uh, Joel Holbrook's uh, Falcon has implemented a few things in querying. Um, mm. You know, I've had one or two features come in through PRs mm. and, you know, but all of the storage, all of the, the query engine, uh, this has been entirely me. Um, yeah. I, I have other jobs, uh, other things yeah. that I've <laughs> had to get done. And, you know, I, I managed all of this by myself because I was using Clojure. Yeah. And I was a little horrified at how large the storage system had become. Mm. Um, because, you know, I, I mentioned that whole layering approach. Well, there's a lot of code in there, closure code, and the namespaces look really large to me. Yeah. And so I, I said, you know, for the whole storage system, how big is this thing? And did a, a line count on it. And I skipped the, the blank lines, mm. uh, but I left the comments in. And I, I tend to be very verbose with comments. So, you know, um, maybe a quarter to a third of my source code will be uh, comments. Yeah. Uh, but I think I totaled around 7,000 lines. Oh, wow. Whereas, you know, Mulgara, I think, is more like 100,000 lines. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So an order of magnitude smaller. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it was, I can look at a function and see what it does. You know, mm. sometimes it takes a bit of effort to understand what this bit of code does, but this is why yeah. I write a lot of comments because I know I'm the person looking at it in six months and, <laughs> and wondering what the fuck is this. Exactly. Yeah. And I often yeah. have. And so the more experience I get, the more I write comments. Right. Um, you know, I have some code where I've got more comments than code. Um, mm. And I have no qualms about writing very tricky code. Mm -hmm. So long as I have extensive comments around it to say what I'm doing and why. Mm. But, um, yeah, I'm, I can look at a function. Typically, I can fit the entire function on, into a page, and mm. I can see it all at once, and my eyes can go up and down and around it, mm. and mm. I'll understand what I'm looking at. Mm. And if there is some sort of complex chunk of something, well, that becomes its own function, and, and I'll describe it. The, the function name is what I'm doing there. Yeah. And so I'll be going through a thing and I say, well, and now I do the thing. Well, I've got the do the thing function happening in the middle. Mm -hmm. And I know that I do that thing. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I'm doing that thing in a loop or I'm doing that thing mapped across something. Or mm -hmm. uh, And then when I want to say, well, what are the details of doing that thing? Well, I can go into it. And the, that whole drill down approach that mm -hmm. I learned from SICP. So one maybe is maybe is the obvious comparison then, or the obviously the interesting question, maybe <laughs> maybe I'm flattering yeah. myself here. Is like <laughs> how in terms of like Java, you're doing everything like based around class designs and objects and stuff like this and messages in theory at least. Um, and obviously with Clojure, you're doing more functional programming again in theory at least. Um, so how does that, how do those things like play out in terms of, you know, your implementation, you know, in terms of like the comparison was a lot of that, like the cognitive overhead of objects, like helping, or was it when you stripped it off, was actually, it actually, you know, a lot of complexity fell away. A lot of complexity fell away. 
like I said, I had the same general data architecture mm. that Mongara has, but I've implemented it differently. And, you know, where a lot of state was happening in Java objects, now they're happening in closures. Mm. Mm. Um, and, you know, everything's functional, so I'm trying not to update things. Um, there are a few occasions where performance has meant that I've really had to go back in and change something to stateful. Mm. Uh, I had, you know, I have a module which takes entities which are maps of nested complexity um, with, actually, these things come straight out of JSON. So <laughs> uh, they can be maps of values or, you know, so that you can have submaps and you can have arrays and, mm -hmm. you know, all the way down. And I've got to turn that into triples. Mm. And I have to process that whole thing, turn it into a series of, of triples, which then get inserted. Mm. Uh, and I did all of that with pure functions. Mm. And then I was being asked, you know, can you please make this faster? Mm. And so I, I went in and I, you know, created a um, uh, lexically scoped, sorry, not lexically, I apologize. Uh, I went in and I, I I created some dynamically scoped um, bars mm. um, and it would all be occurring within a thread. So I'd use volatiles mm -hmm. and the same functional pattern was being executed, but rather than returning structures, which then get um, concatted together. Um, instead, as you go through the functions, it was doing, um, it was conging into the into a vector that was being held in the uh, in the volatile, mm. and then I'd return that big vector at the end of it, and I got a twenty fold speed improvement. Right, um, right, right, right. Yeah. So that was really disappointing to go from <laughs> from really pure code because when things go wrong or when I want to change something, everything's isolated beautifully. Mm. Uh, but when I changed it to this, it you know, necessarily is I'm going to have a, um, it's going to tie it into the implementation a little bit more. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, the, the data that's going in now matters, it's ordering, et cetera. Uh, and that was mostly in testing, but I was, uh, I was concerned about the way that this would change the, the isolation levels. Mm. Um, so far, it's been good. And in fact, we had a problem just the other day uh, where there was a remnant of something where I'd processed a, a, an array as a um, recursively. Mm -hmm. And then it turns out we were getting JSON where we had several thousand items in an array, like 10 levels down in, in the map structures. Yeah. And I didn't know that because it was a two, you know, it, it was a, um, you know, uh, I can't remember how big it was, but it was a, a very large JSON file. Mm. And, you know, you, you spit it out to a console and it takes five minutes to scroll past. <laughs> wow, so you okay. can't. <laughs> um, and putting it into a SAMI through a, um, uh, uh, a what is it, uh, an out-of-stack error. Mm -hmm. And it turned out it was because I was processing arrays as as a recursive operation. Yeah. And uh, so I, I changed that. And the recent work that I'd done on this with one of my colleagues had um, 
shifted that into uh, updating a volatile. And so I, I got rid of that recursion part because I was doing the recursion. I get back a big list and then I'd into uh into the array well now the recursion now directly puts things in and i don't recurse down anymore i loop over it and uh you know some of that work you know has paid off um and it's pulled me further away from functional programming which i'm not happy about Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. at the same time there are practical concerns with performance yeah and that's going to continue because, you know, um, this sort of thing should probably be done in Java or uh, Rust yeah. <laughs> or something, <laughs> something where, yeah, you, you're a bit lower down. But if I had set out building it like that, then I could not have done it as an individual. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you make it right, then you make it fast, you know? Yeah, and it's gradually yeah, yeah. moving that way. Yeah. But, I mean, doing it in, in Clojure, you know, I'd spent a year and I had this thing up and running. Asami was originally a side project on on Naga. Um, mm. I built the Naga rules engine. Mm. The idea was it was abstracted away from any graph database. My plan was to talk to Sparkle, Datomic, OrientDB, a whole lot of them. Yeah. And my ma- manager at the time was thrilled with it and said, do this on company time. Um, and, oh, Okay. And he said, but I don't want you talking to a commercial system like Datomic. Um, can you build your own? Mm. I'm like, <laughs> well, I don't actually need all of the features of a graph database. I only need like join operations and basic querying. So I, I could do that. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> and I did. And it fits into two namespaces. It's really quite small. Uh, mm. It does have a query planner, but it, you know, the queries at that point were just join operations. So the, the planner was just, you know, which order to do the joins in. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that code is, you know, small and trackable and you should be able to read through that without too much trouble. And I did it in a couple of days, I think. Nice. Um, the problem was that he then got, he was very happy with it and asked for more features and oh, more features and, yeah. and it kept growing. And the next <laughs> thing I knew I was rebuilding a graph database <laughs> and, and then he turned around and said, I want to shift all of this off the computers, um, the, the backend stuff on AWS, and put it into the browser. Can you make it portable? Wow. <laughs> so I, I renamed everything to CLJC, and it all worked. Um, wow. Not really. Um, <laughs> I renamed Excellent. it all to CLJC, and then I learned what the differences were. <laughs> and I discovered a couple of ClojureScript bugs, um, mm. uh, which I reported and were fixed. So that was mm. great. Um, but it mostly just worked, uh, Mm. but it has, you know, directed me. Sometimes I wanted to do something and went, no, I've got to make sure that I, I got it working on both systems together. Mm -hmm. Um, but that's how it evolved. And eventually it got so big. I thought, you know, this has nothing to do with the rule, with the rule engine. It should be its own project. And so I, I pulled it out and we had this avatar naming scheme and so i grabbed i I used the character asami as the name for the project um and you know that's where the database came from um and the the whole storage on disk that was my idea i was bored last year during a pandemic so i started (laughs) it and I, i mentioned to my manager new manager this time that i was doing it and he said uh oh that sounds great you should do that for work 
<laughs> <laughs> so I got to spend, I think, overall, I spent maybe three months, maybe wow. less, and I built mm. the whole thing from scratch. Yeah. Um, but it was a it was a pet project, and it could be done better. And I'm, I want to refactor some of it. Um, mm. uh, one part of it is in ABL trees, which I'd like to keep using, but. Uh, another part is also using ABL trees, and I want to shift that to B trees. Mm. But okay. yeah, and um, so one of the things that that you said that you know, this the performance thing that is still still enclosure, but you have to make some trade offs in terms of the design of the application, whether using functional, pure idealistic, you know, platonic functional way, or you know, or, or some other thing. Um, are there any other frustrations or issues that you faced with closure? Like, okay, this would have been done in Delphi, fuck this. <laughs> Something like that. Oh, goodness. I haven't looked at Delphi for 25 years. <laughs> um, doing some of the low-level memory mapped operations, yeah. uh, that, that stuff is frustrating in the JVM in general. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, especially when you say, right, I've got this mapping, but now I need to extend it because the file has to be bigger. That old mm -hmm. one has to go away now so that I can free up my address space for the process. Mm -hmm. um, and you have to trust that your the, the VM is going to do that for you, and it doesn't always. Yeah. Um, and there was some magic voodoo that we had in Mulgara to try to, that prompted the JVM to do that. Yeah. Um, and I've got a little bit of that still, but that shouldn't be happening. So do, do you use, I mean, I mean, I've done something similar in the past with Netty. So, you know, you can use like these Netty abstractions over, over these NIO things, or is that not something that you need to worry about? Um, no, I haven't got any kind of abstractions like that. I'm working directly with it, but mm. you know, the, if you look in the code, it's it's very abstracted one layer over the other, and it's mm -hmm. heavily tested at each layer before moving onto the layer above it. Um, okay. The uh, external dependencies of Asami are minimal. Mm -hmm. uh, it depends on closure and closure script. <laughs> uh, it depends on um, core cache. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so, and... Not all of the caching is available in um, in ClojureScript, yeah. But uh, so I I've actually ported some of it into ClojureScript, um, and that then used a a, a map that uh, I can't think of the person's name who's done it. I can look up the code, but um, <laughs> so there's a, a couple of things which I've pulled in like that, but there's no uh th there's there's very little external dependency at all in mm. fact now that i've said this i'm kind of curious to see what 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 some of them are yeah, um, i'm looking at it so you have a uh, core cache you have zuko so have... zuko i wrote it's actually yeah. um because naga was doing some things and uh i wanted naga separate from asami and yeah. yet I wanted also to be able to talk to other databases. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to be able to run Naga without any dependency on Asami. And yeah. so the things which are going to be used by both projects were put into a, uh, into a utility library, and that's Supra, yeah. oh, which okay. is another avatar character. Yeah. Um, 
so and, and naga with, is is the um is it comparable to something like other clara or is it is like basically a rule engine because we have enclosure clara yeah. and yeah yeah if you go to the 2016 closure conch i yeah. did a talk at it ah, where okay. i described naga and the whole architecture and okay. what it does and everything yeah um oh i i'm dependent on prismatic schema yeah so you're still um, still using old world <laughs> <laughs> I like the um the ability to describe my schema elsewhere. I yeah. really struggled putting pulling my schema into a separate namespace in mm. um wh- when I was doing it in spec. Mm-hmm. I also found that the spec schema was dragging me into doing a lot more development on on that side. Mm. Uh whereas the schema that I needed the level of description i needed was being handled quite well by prismatic or plumatic schema yeah yeah and uh, so i've stayed with that hmm. um yeah so i'm dependent on um, prismatic plumatic schema uh yeah. core cache yeah um and you'll see yeah uh, data priority map and yeah. and then the uh closure script priority map that hmm. is for the um the cache that I was referring to. Okay. Um so the core cache stuff that doesn't work in um that doesn't in work in closure script and yeah. I ported it into closure script that that's um built on a priority map so I just mm. put that that in. And that's it. That's all of the external dependencies. Yeah. Um so Zuko and Qtest are both things that I wrote um yeah. as, as well. So yeah, that's that's everything. But it's it's nice. fascinating how much you can do with you know such a minimal amount of code, and then have uh, so in terms of feature parity, do would you say that it has similar level of features compared to what is it Malgara? Um, there are a few things missing. Malgara had a lot of um, plugins for talking <laughs> to external data sources. Okay, so y- you could take um, you could talk to JDBC or you could talk to um, f- different file formats and things like this and represent them all as triples in RDF. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and it would translate it to talk to those things. Uh, yeah, I don't yeah. have that. Yeah. Um, of course, the API for talking to Mulgara was Sparkle and I don't do Sparkle. But okay. I think that would be a relatively thin implementation. So I created a ticket for it anyway. Yeah. <laughs> um, see if I ever get to it. Um, <laughs> yeah. Then, but in terms of the engine and what you know, in storage and query capability, then yeah, I think it's pretty close. Wow. Um, I think that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. One of the adapters that was really nice in Mulgara was that I could talk to remote data sources, mm. and um, I. And I could do that in the middle of a, a query. So I could have a subquery where I said from and give the URL of a remote store. Yeah. And it would issue the query against that and return the data and join it locally. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And that was um, not the most efficient way to join data across a network, but it worked very effectively. Yeah. Um, I don't have that per se, but the results can be the results of the query can be used as one of the sources 
because if you're using Datomic, um, when you do a query, you the first argument is the query itself, and then the remaining arguments are the data sources that you're querying against. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, you can put the results of another query as a data source. Yeah. And uh, so we can do that here and mm. uh, in Asami, and that that actually gets executed extremely efficiently. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's a nice way of doing subquerying, and I want to bring that in syntactically so you can just issue one query and it'll do it internally right, right. in one yeah, step. Yeah. But um, uh, but yeah, we can. I can do a, a remote query and have those results come in and and use that as a basis of further querying against local data, but yeah. um, it's not as nicely set up as uh, as Mulgara could do that. One maybe is a, a, a like a more abstract, not abstract question, a more concrete question actually is like, so what kind of like um, like we're talking a lot about the implementation and the history and stuff. What kind of use cases are you gonna? Uh, uh, People who want to maybe be motivated to use Asami, you know, in the after this show, get very excited. What kind of use cases are are there? Are there, you know, are there, is a sweet spot for for Asami? That's a really good question. Uh, I'm caught up, of course, looking <laughs> at looking at the trees, and and it's always awkward to take that step back and look at the forest. Uh, our particular use case is that we have a lot of um, data that comes to us as JSON mm -hmm. uh, from different sources, and we want to bring that in and find linkages between it. Um, query to find, you know, where things are linked, and then infer new data from that that can also go into the, the data structure. Uh, and it's very effective at that. Um, I'm personally finding that it's really useful for exploring JSON. Mm. Um, so. <laughs> One of the things that RDF does is it has very strict ideas about what can go in the subject, predicate, and object positions. Mm -hmm. um, so the subject position can be blank nodes or URIs, and that's it. Uh, yeah. The predicate position can be URIs only, and the object yeah. position can be uh, URIs, blank nodes, uh, or values, and mm -hmm. values like anything. Mm -hmm. um, so Datomic, let's see, in the is very similar. Um, the subject position is going to be, um, you know, entity. Yeah. Um, the attribute position is well internally it stores it as a as a reference to to an attribute, but it's a you can go directly and and, and represent that as a keyword, mm. and then. And those keywords all had to be defined up front as your schema. Mm -hmm. And then the value can be anything. And that value uh, in your schema, you say, well, this attribute talks uh, re represents dates, or this attribute represents strings, or this one is a reference to another entity. Um, so Asami has none of those rules at all. Hmm. Uh, initially it had some and then someone complained about something so I pulled one of those rules out and then pulled another rule out and I threw all the rules away in the end <laughs> um, so you can have attributes which are strings oh. uh, you can have entities which are strings or numbers or whatever there's no safety type safety to it whatsoever <laughs> but what this has meant is that you can pull in JSON hmm. and 
so someone was trying to load up JSON, convert it to Eden, and load it into into Asami, but it turned out that they had attributes which were auto-generated. Uh, it was a um, a pcap file mm-hmm. that being represented in JSON. Uh, these attributes were really long string structures with spaces in them, yeah. and uh, they were trying to convert this into Eden to load, and of course it wouldn't work. So uh, this was what prompted me in the end to throw away all the type safety. Um, so now I can load up JSON and I can do a query and, and say, which attributes in my system have spaces in the names? Um, (laughs) and I can say, well, you know, find how, you know, if this talks to this, talks to this, talks to this, you know, show me that. And I can just load up a raw JSON file and do queries against it that does this sort of thing. Mm. Uh, and I'm finding that it's really useful, uh, approach to, uh, to just, you know, exploring data that I don't know about yet. So you could um, basically suck in an, a MongoDB and make sense out of it. Yes. It's <laughs> probably the yeah. biggest use case I can imagine, actually. <laughs> yeah, because there's so much junk in these MongoDBs, you know. <laughs> Sorry. That's yeah. fine. Um, yeah, I've been doing a lot of this sort of thing lately where I'm given this big data structure and I, I just throw it into the database and start querying against it and find yeah. out what's in there and you know, how many things I have and where do I have something which is really enormous or, mm. um, you know, I can find when I've got a multi-gigabyte JSON file and it's causing me problems somewhere, I can use queries to find where those problems are. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we can also treat it as a graph um, mm-hmm. and, you know, get a lot of those sorts of benefits out of it. And we can bring data in from lots of different places. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's just one feature away from, from, you know, dethroning Excel. <laughs> <laughs> just, uh, all you need is just a UI and then you're ready. <laughs> I mean, that's just the I mean, holy grail. Well, for me, it would be really nice if it were done, but it's not. And I, <laughs> the longer I'm on it, the more I realize it'll never be done. Sure, uh, sure. Yeah, and the idea yeah. that someone might be coming to help me soon is really exciting. Yeah, um, yeah. But it's... I mean, I love the fact that it's now big enough and useful enough that I can do things with it. Mm, yeah. Um, and I, I never, I never set out to build a database. I was just. I set out to build a rule engine and I was yeah. told, well, can you build your own database for it? And that was all I had expected to do. Right. And it just kept growing and, <laughs> you know, and now a lot of those new features are trying to figure out how to expose that in the rule engine so that so the rule engine is, is essentially, well, no, not essentially, it is a data log rule engine. Yeah. And but data log is in, in the data log sense, not data yes, well, data log sense. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. it's, it's literally in the data log sense. And yeah. so I can write data log programs. Mm. So I can take a whole lot of prolog mm. and then put it in directly and it'll execute it just fine. Ah, okay. Mm. Yeah. Um, have a look at that 2016 talk I did. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> At the end of the talk, I do exactly yeah. that. I take a small program in Prolog, yeah. and yeah. I run it through Prolog, and then I run it through Naga. Wow. Nice. And uh, and it was being backed by this storage. Hmm. Um, 
yeah, so that was what I set out to do, but now I've got a database. Because <laughs> <laughs> I knew from Mulgara that, you know, a database was too big to implement as one person. I couldn't do it. Yeah. Yeah. And I wasn't get, I would never set out to build something like that because it's just too big. Yeah. Um, somehow I built it. Didn't mean but, to. But at, at this rate, I think you're, you're going to go and then build the operating system, you know, like the, the, the Lisp OS that you need to run this database on. The well, browser. at the moment, I, I keep, <laughs> I want to do new things, new features, but I keep yeah. having to dive back in to fix one thing or to tweak something else. Or, yeah. you know, at the moment, I'm halfway through implementing document storage in there. So at mm. the moment, it's all about the, the statements. And when you want to get a document out of it, it rebuilds the document out of statements. Yeah. But I'm I'm half built um, the uh, document storage as well. So yeah. Yeah. it'll actually s store the documents as well as the statements that represent the document. So when you find the document you want, you can pull the whole thing out. It just yeah. has to deserialize it as opposed to rebuilding it. Mm -hmm. Okay. So for the people who who need to you know get into the into the code base and then start. I don't know, hacking on it or understand it better to 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 learn more of the graph databases and as well as contributing to Asami. So mm -hmm. what what kind of prerequisites do you think they, they should have? Apart from closure knowledge, obviously. Uh well and, I was and say don't closure. say fifteen years of uh, <laughs> <laughs> don't say fifteen years of graph database knowledge. Uh I don't know. Uh having having some knowledge of Purely functional data structures. Yeah, by Chris Okasaki. Yeah, there's like a yeah, like extremely uh, important book, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I'm, the podcast listeners can't see, but I'm yeah. holding up the book right now. Yes. Um, having some knowledge of that would mm. be a really great start. Although, you know, a lot of what Asami does in memory is um, just using closure data structures, which yeah. You know, it's built on purely functional yeah, data yeah, structures. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. what's on disk is doing something similar as well. Hmm. Um, I don't know. Uh, a lot of it I try to explain in the code or I hmm. document in GitHub. Yeah. Um, if you look on GitHub, you'll see I've written lots of pages and pages of, <laughs> of documentation. Yeah, yeah. And um, I... You know, I'm trying to describe the process. I want to bring people in to understand what I've been doing yeah. uh, so that if they're interested, they can read this stuff and, and have an understanding of it. Yeah. Um, what, one of the frustrating things is when I have colleagues who are saying, well, I'm looking at this and I just don't get it. You know, how would this work? How would I possibly I would say, have you looked at the page, at the documentation <laughs> for this? And the answer is always, oh, well, no. <laughs> And it's the got reason... to the point where I have other colleagues who said, have you looked at the documentation for that? Because <laughs> it's all a good day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I think, you know, our, 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 we, are, we are conditioned to, to assume that there won't be documentation given yes. the amount of things that are documented versus the thing. I mean, it's the same stuff like nobody reads man pages. You know, Unix is like documented like hell out of it. And, and nobody reads them. And every time you see, oh, you can use this switch. Like, how do you know? Because I read the man page. That's man how page. I know. How would I know? Like, <laughs> it's impossible. So I think we, our our default approach is that, well, there's not going to be any documentation. So don't bother, you know, even looking for it. <laughs> not everything is documented. But, you know, yeah. I've taken the time to do a lot of things. Yeah. Um, 
you know, and I, I try to do that. And, you know, where things aren't in the wiki, I put a lot of comments into the source code. Yeah. Um, a lot of comments into the source code. <laughs> um, I've tried to make it accessible. It's big, yeah. but, you know, what is it? Um, if I... Uh, I know it's also you've got like good first issues and stuff like that. So you're trying to make it, uh, I mean, you know, accessible and amenable to people coming to join the project. I have tried, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. So I just, yeah, yeah. I just um, did a find over the project um, and just put it all through a word count. Yeah. So I'm not pulling out lines of comments, not pulling out blank lines or anything like that. The whole project is 7,800 lines. So that should be easy enough to get into, at least to, to, to walk through, read through. And the problem understand. with closure, though, is 7,800 lines. <laughs> it, it can be like, it can be, those 7,800 lines matter, you know, because it can be pretty yeah, dense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I imagine, yeah. you know, it could be, like you said, you're not scared of doing some tricky closure, so, and a few volatiles, et cetera. So, <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, you know, it's still, it's still, you know, it's still, small enough to be uh to be accessible for sure yeah yeah you're not well, looking so. at like a million lines of code to start you know no well it's yeah. what um there's 39 namespaces in there right yeah. right yeah. uh the biggest one is the query namespace and that's mm -hmm. um nearly 900 lines but mm -hmm. i also I, I think a lot of that is white space and comments mm. yeah so nice. yeah so I think we had some green room talk, so let's get to the the meat of the podcast. <laughs> so the main topic of the podcast. Sure. So your your editor journey. So Emacs or some <laughs> other shit that you use. <laughs> that is that is the most important thing. Welcome to the Emacs section of this podcast. <laughs> well, I mean, at university they taught me VI. Okay. And then I, um, you know, when I, I went out to work in my first couple of jobs on Solaris, I was using VI. On Windows, yeah. I was using the uh, Ball and C API. Yeah. I mean, the UI. The editor, yeah. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, I kept coming back to VI, and then I think in the late 90s, it was NVI. Yeah. Um, and then... Around 2000, I was back on Linux full time then, and I was using Vim. Mm -hmm. And I've I used Vim pretty much constantly up until maybe five years ago. Mm. Um, and I was just finding that Vim and Clojure are not as smoothly integrated as I was as I would like. Mm. Um, Par Edit in particular really annoys me on Vim. Uh, so I finally thought I'll try Emacs. I'd given it a go a few times and just never developed that muscle memory. And it, yeah. um, and I was always so much slower navigating. So I went to um, Emacs. I tried Space Max, but there were mm. there were some things which differed between you know Space Max bindings and um, and Vim bindings. So for instance, yeah. like I think Capital Y. It will, um, which is supposed to yank the an entire line into the buffer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Instead, yanks from that cursor position yeah, to the end of the line in the butter. Yeah. 
yeah. in the buffer. Yeah. And, you know, little things like that being different were catching me out all the time. Mm. So I moved to uh, evil mode mm. and that worked really nicely. Um, so I've been using evil mode Emacs now ever since. Yeah. And every so often I learn a new thing in Emacs, but but generally if I learn a new thing, I will create a key binding for it yeah. um, so that I don't have to remember it anymore. Um, and, you know, <laughs> so my... My whole memory of Emacs is actually in my init file with the key bindings. <laughs> How do I do this? I go through that file. Oh, that's right. And I, uh, so, um, so Emacs so is yeah. just a, a better version of Vim as far as you're concerned, for a closure version of Vim. Well, Emacs yes. is a better version yeah. of everything. <laughs> what do you um, mean better version of Vim? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, just recently on, um, uh, on the Clojurian Slack, Somebody said, hey, we're doing a show-and-tell channel. Um, mm. You know, why don't you take a screenshot of what you're working on and do this? And I thought, oh, well, I'm... <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I, I screenshotted where I was that day and put it in. And I have all of these windows, the Emacs windows open, because uh, yeah. I use multiple windows. And they're yeah. all in the same process. So you can, yeah, yeah. Um, on the Mac, you can just use command uh, with the back quote or left, yeah. right to switch between yeah. them. Um, and they were saying, oh, why aren't you using multiple buffers in the one window? And I was like, yeah. well, I don't like that. <laughs> and I can switch around them very easily and I can resize easily with the mouse and things yeah. like that. Because um, resizing isn't something I feel I need to do with a keyboard. Yeah. Um, uh, I think yeah. it's sacrilegious to open a new frame in Emacs, you know, like, because you're supposed to have everything inside Emacs, full screen yeah. Emacs, nothing else. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not like that. <laughs> well, it's it's quite funny to watch, like you know, VJ squirm as you talk about that. You know, he's obviously unhappy. You know, he's like, I'm enjoying. I'm enjoying this section of the podcast now. You know, <laughs> I've been going back to Vim a little more frequently recently. Oh, he's really getting oh, upset actually, now. not Vim. I'm, I've been going back to Neo Vim. Yeah, yeah, um, and it's a it's a scripting language is slightly better than. The ancient arcane magic shit that you need to the Vim script thing. The the neo Vim is slightly better. Or yeah, is, well, it it, it is. Um, yeah. I particularly uh, I've been enjoying um, uh, what's it called Fennel by Oliver uh, Caldwell. Mm -hmm. um, so that's a closure like Lisp yeah. for neo Vim. Ah, okay. Um, and so, you know, that's been pulling me back a little bit as well. Ah. Well, meanwhile, I think Emacs uh, Elisp is now getting compiled to native stuff. So there is a GCC compile <laughs> mode. It's now, it's now way faster than everything. So. <laughs> oh, man, the church of Emacs. Here he is, the preacher, you know. <laughs> Don't go back there. <laughs> Don't go back there, my daughter. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, I think this this whole uh, there is there is a lot of confluence of ideas, right? Things are coming in across different things, and and one of the things that that uh, with Wim was the Wim scripting that I all right enough and of then, this now. Come on, okay, very realistically, now, let's stop this. <laughs> I think I think with Neo Wim with Lua, it's slightly better. I think I don't know, uh, but I I would not know because I don't use them. <laughs> Anyway. Well, I just want a tool which makes my coding 
um, easier and faster. Yeah. Um, I navigate faster with Vim than I mm. do in anything else. Uh, yeah. So Evil Emacs gives me that. Yeah. yeah. Um, I get a lot of the, the benefits of CIDR. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I do, I do enjoy working with CIDR and mm. uh, that'll keep me in Emacs, but I like Evil Mode. And yeah. I just need to switch out of it occasionally, like if I want to try debugging. But honestly, I rarely use the debugger at all. Mm. Um, and yeah. But it is, I, I, I keep seeing like this kind of, um, I, I also read the internet gossip that, you know, people like uh, Linus, they never use debuggers, apparently. <laughs> it seems to be only for mere mortals like me putting breakpoints somewhere and then going through mm. them. But debugging seems to be like, ah, I never use that. So all these um, awesome programmers that that are you know the legends of the internet, and they're like, oh, we don't use debugger. No, like, no, they use printk. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, everywhere. That's basically one, <laughs> one thing. <laughs> Look, I do. I've been known to abuse um, PRN. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and yeah, I mean, closure I find is really useful. Uh, yeah. Not doing this, mm. um, I I guess I could use a debugger to to breakpoint something and, and go through. But normally, what I like to do is just throw a, a printlin or a prn into yeah, a yeah, yeah. Uh, into a function, and then through my tests, which failed, you know, what was the data at this point? I was yeah. expecting this. Oh, it was that. Why? And yeah. when I was early in my career, I had a mentor who taught me not to do so much of that, but instead to think, no, yeah. not, not to debug things, yeah. but to think, why did this fail? And mm. uh, what was the, what's the expression? Um, something like, you know, uh, hours and hours of, of um, hours and hours of printing out different, different options can be, yeah. uh, uh, what is it? Uh, it can be used to to save yourself from just one minute of thinking the problem through. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yes. <laughs> I I do try to do that. Like, why is this going wrong? What is mm. happening? And mm. it makes me think about my code a lot more. I'm not yeah. as deep a thinker as Rich Hickey is. Uh, he tends to, you know, have things pretty much right before he starts typing things out or before he. He releases something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I am a little more iterative, whereas mm. I I like to think it through. I like to have the general shape of it in my head. But yeah. then, as I'm building things, I'll sometimes realize, oh, I was wrong there. I've got to do this, and I'll iterate my way th toward yeah. the solution more. And you know, it would be more disciplined to think it through better. Yeah. Um, but I I find you know these are the habits that I've developed. Um, yeah. I'm more effective this way. But I do think about it a lot before writing the first bit of code. Yeah. And then when things aren't working, I'll think it through a lot before I try to figure out yeah, how yeah. to fix it. Because oftentimes that quick fix is not the correct way to do it. You can yeah. introduce new pro problems. and um, So I, I like to think and understand my issues. Mm. Yeah. Well, that's a good bit of advice to... Uh... Start to wind up on. I think I just looked yes. at the time. It's like we're uh... yeah. <laughs> and I like noticed it's getting very dark around here as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> I also noticed that my my system just switched to the night mode. I was like, yeah, yeah. Like, it just flipped and <laughs> because I set it on auto night mode. <laughs> what is happening? Yeah, so I haven't been paying attention at the time because I wasn't sure when we were starting after that pizza debacle. <laughs> yep, sorry about that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, totally. I think uh, it was uh, delayed because of race pizza adventure. And, well, I think it's looking pretty good actually. So I hope uh, it was nice. It was delicious. Yes, absolutely. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so I think it's a good time to wrap up the discussion. And and um, yeah, this is this is this has been. I mean, I I could talk to you for hours and hours, and then you know, dig, pick your brain on, on more on this kind of stuff. But uh, I think we gotta we gotta stop at some point. <laughs> so th- thanks That's a lot. That's how you finish all the podcasts, you. isn't it? <laughs> uh, no, not really. I mean, we say that to other people, you know, to plan it to them. But, but this time is real. It really means it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> no, honestly, because as I told you, I've been uh, looking into graph databases a lot because doing, I mean, for, as a user, not, not I, I don't have the, the level of knowledge to, to actually build a shit. So, well, neither do I. Oh, <laughs> uh, come on. I mean, <laughs> you already built like four of them. So, um, so th- this has been like, you know, at least for me, it's very inspirational and, and to understand where you're coming from and uh, what kind of things that you're thinking about and how you're building all this stuff. So uh, I'm very grateful and thank you for, for joining us. And it's, uh, it's been a pleasure, I think. Yeah. An you're welcome. It's been a fun yeah. afternoon. Thank you. Yeah, no, it's thank been you. fantastic. So I think uh, that's it from us for the episode 73. And uh, we will be there, depending on uh, when you listen to this podcast, we'll be there at Closure D virtually, or we have been there. So if mm. we publish this before Closure D, please join us. If we publish this after Closure D, thanks for talking to us at Closure D, <laughs> Say, <laughs> saying hi to us. Um, so uh, I think that's that's it from us. And uh, thanks again, uh, Paula, for joining us and uh, talking, walking us through the graph traversing oh the- <laughs> <laughs> you're welcome we want we always like to have a podcast with a little bit of edge yeah. yes <laughs> boom uh, yes <laughs> finally all the graph jokes are done now thank you for listening to this episode of defan and the awesome vegetarian music or the track is melon hamburger by pizzeri and the show's audio is mixed by Walter dullert i'm pretty sure i butchered his name um, maybe you should insert your own name here, Dalit. Would you? If you'd like to support us, uh, please do check out our Patreon page and you can show your appreciation to all the hard work or the lack of hard work that we're doing. And um, you can also catch up with uh, either Ray, with me, for some unexplainable reason. Uh, you want to interact with us, then uh, do check us out on Slack, Closure and Slack or Closureverse or on Zulip or just at us at Deafen Podcast on Twitter. Enjoy your day and see you in the next episode.